Hi there. This is What's Left of Philosophy. I'm Gil. In just a second, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Lillian, Will, and Owen. Slightly different than our usual deal for this one, uh, we recorded this episode during a Twitch live stream a few days ago. Huge thanks to everyone who joined us for the stream and participated in the chat. We all had a really great time. Uh, the episode's only very lightly edited compared with our normal stuff, uh, both to retain a bit more of the naturalistic live show vibe and also because I'm lazy, just uh, really lazy. Feel free to let us know what you think, and if you like it, maybe we'll do more live stream recordings in the future. With all that said, let's start the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the stream. So we're talking about a paper that will um, is forthcoming. I don't remember where it's forthcoming. Can you remind me, Will? Um, Punta. It's called Punta. So the title of the paper is called Crisis Consciousness, Utopian Consciousness, and the Struggle for Racial Justice. Um, and when I read this paper, I thought it was an extremely timely. And um, Will is, at least my understanding of things, is diagnosing a kind of, I just want to say, I want to say mainstream, but I, I also just think ubiquitous way of thinking about social change. Um, and he calls it the awareness model of consciousness, wherein people if you if you raise awareness or you raise consciousness about a particular social issue, then like somehow social change is supposed to come from that. And I think that we're kind of aware of that model when it comes to like, I don't know, like really liberal politics, like in school, it's like raise awareness about the earth and like Earth Day and then like... <laughs> What what do we you know we we raise awareness about issues. It's what you do when you engage in <laughs> advocacy or lobbying and what have you. Um, and so there's this way of thinking about social change and the role that consciousness is supposed to play in it. And um, it's also the case that like we tend to think about this way of integrating consciousness into social change when we talk about racial justice, whether implicitly or explicitly, we think that, for example, white people becoming increasingly aware of racism should like do something in general. Like we just think something should happen after that. And um, one of the big social questions of the post-2020 era is, I mean, insofar as we're two years out from the most, you know, largest in the street protests, some say in American history, um, against, you know, police brutality and in the specific in instance of George, George Floyd's murder, you saw this huge shift in consciousness and a multiracial group of people on the streets, people, you know, and, and it's kind of shocking the, the speed and the intensity of the discussion about what we call our racial reckoning or the great awakening or whatever else you want to call it since um, 2020. Um, but the uncomfortable question that should be confronting us all that will takes up in the paper is like well why didn't change happen after that like if it's true um and you know we can talk about change in small ways like and and i think that people can get a little bit anxious when you say nothing happened because it's like what was all that for and then you can talk about taking down statues and you can talk about various efforts for diversifying and various attempts to defund the police but like i think the meta picture here is that like structurally speaking I, we're all kind of like burying our head in the sands if you think like the big change went on or that it's obviously coming. Um, and I feel like what Will is doing is confronting this reality in a really, um, in a theoretical way and is saying like, what is it that, why didn't it happen? Is it simply, and here's the prevailing theories in the New York Times, for example, is it that there's just still too much ignorance despite the fact that every corner of our society is talking about race is it the case that people are not true in their anti-racist conversions, like it's just not serious enough? Or is it the case that like there is just a massive backlash of consciousness, like that, that people can be kind of won over momentarily, but then there is just backlash after that, almost inevitably for reasons that are unclear. Um, and so all of this prompts Will to ask what role social consciousness plays in social transformation, like what do we expect about shifts in consciousness? Um, and what I understand Will to be doing is giving a materialist theory of consciousness, and he, at various points in the paper, contrasts a materialist theory of consciousness with implicitly, I think, an idealist one in which, um, 
the materialist theory of consciousness has a couple of levels that the idealist one doesn't. The idealist one would say that awareness and cognition are basically the stuff of human consciousness, and therefore we would just expect stuff to happen once you are thinking about things or are aware of things. Whereas like the materialist theory of consciousness has a couple of levels. On the one hand, um, there's, there's two questions. It's like, yes, being aware of problems is one thing, but then the additional question is like, given that I am aware, now what do I do? Um, these are two, and I think that's how you put it in the paper. And, um, the fact that the idealist version of consciousness doesn't ask about this second level means that there's kind of like an epistemic deficiency in the way that we think about um, the role of consciousness in social transformation. So that's just kind of like there's a taking stock moment in this paper that I think is super interesting and politically relevant. And the second is the kind of juxtaposition of two different materialist and idealist ways of thinking about consciousness. And then the third thing is like um, what a, a comparison between different kinds of consciousness, crisis and utopian consciousness. Um, and Will basically argues that the crisis consciousness is kind of what we're all aware of. Like you become aware of a problem, but it's not clear that there's like a political follow through to that. And what seems to be missing, and this is um, a part of Will's bigger project, is the utopian consciousness, which is our ability to anticipate the future, um, our ability to turn, you know, a crisis into something that um, opens up a world or opens up horizons for us. And um, that seems to be like the forgotten level of analysis that we just demand that people know more. And now we have just a world of people who like know everything. Like uh, within the past five years, people have become experts on racism in the United States in this fascinating way, but like are politically just in, pra in, in terms of practical knowledge it's not clear that those two things are happening simultaneously. So that's what I would say are like the three things, taking stock, the role of consciousness and social transformation and like what a materialist idea of this is. And then the payoff of this is like you need to be able to construct realistic utopias about the future if you want consciousness to play a role in like social change. So I am sorry that went on a long time. I just kind of summer like, okay. Um, that was great. So I'm just going to ask Will, and then I'm going to shut up and everybody else can jump in. I just thought maybe a, a summary for live listeners would be helpful. Um, yeah. Who great. is the audience for this, and what was your motivation mm. in constructing the paper? Because when I read it, I was like, there's kind of an obvious audience, which is the people who tell you to recycle and raise awareness about Earth Day and think about racial justice similarly. But I, <laughs> <laughs> the Earth Day's killing me. <laughs> like, how well has that worked out for us? But I also think there's like a more subtle, deeper audience that is much broader than that among liberals, progressives on the left. Um, so I wanted to just invite you to say what got you into this, who is it for, and um, why did you write it now? Yeah, thank you. So the audience, you're right. The audience is the the obvious people who are just like you. Like, read Robin D'Angelo, that will do it. You know, put on Kenty scars, that'll do it. And so that's kind of low-hanging fruit. But my deeper audience is actually, you know, other philosophers, you know, especially philosophers on the left who are maybe closer to a more liberal way of thinking. And I'm trying to unearth that I think in philosophies that deal with epistemologies of ignorance that focus, you know, a great deal on ideology critique, that this is, you know, sort of unsaid premise. That, you know, the problem with social change is that, you know, people are still confused, that, you know, um, people still harbor these reactionary desires. And, you know, I'm looking at like the George Floyd protest and I think it's just not feasible anymore to say that, you know, people don't know that they're not aware. And I understand that, you know, what I think is at the center of this and what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to challenge in a, in a deeper way is that we have a hard time thinking of what agency means when we are constrained by social orders. And so we think, I, we think the way out of that is, you know, well, consciousness can have this voluntaristic um, capacity that once it knows, it can just, you know, do. Once it knows about an injustice, it can do something about it. 
Well, what I'm trying to you know understand is can we give you know, um, a richer account of why it can seem like you know a social order is about to change and why the change does not appear? And I cast this out with this phrase, you know, um, horizons of normative expectations. And I try to understand that you know consciousness isn't just you know, um, a work of awareness, being you know cognitively aware of things. It's also the work of you know prediction. It's a work of analyzing one's environment so that you know you can have have some sort of coherent relationship with your surroundings. And people don't do very well when you upset those predictions. And so, you know, this is also me pushing against the idea that you're not going to get the social change you want by, you know, trying to convince people just take a leap of faith or something. And so what I'm trying to argue at the end of the day, what I'm calling utopian consciousness, and I can talk more with you all about it, is that we need to develop counter institutions that can you know, develop knowledge, not just of how the world works, but what latencies or possibilities inhere in our form of life. If we can accept the idea that consciousness, the way that I put in the paper, it can't just outstrip social order. It cannot just like leap into another form of life. Then we need to start asking, well, what can consciousness do when it's you know, trying to pay attention not just to the constraints, but what may be latent possibilities um, in the scenario. And so on, yeah, I'll shut up after I say this last thing that I think is you know, really important for me. And this is you know, the impression that you know, Gill and his spinicism has left on me. Utopian consciousness for me is not cashed out in the imagination. We have all sorts of imaginations about uh, the type of life we could live. It's all sorts of visions, a world without police, a world without borders, a world without nation states, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but you know, I can imagine a world where the, the, the sky may have cotton candy. That doesn't tell me if that's actually a practical reality. What I want to say is that utopian consciousness is about knowledge generation is about actually understanding not just one's social order, but real objective possibilities in that social order. That I think that this might be a bit frustrating to some because it also means not everything is possible at every moment. But what we can do is start creating the types of knowledge institutions that can be prepared when a crisis emerges, when there's a breakdown, and we can start constructing something new. I mean, it just—it seems to me that then, that just to stick with the, you know, who is the object of the critique here, and who are you, who's the audience in a certain way? That, in a certain way, I took this to be a, as it were, critique of critique. Like I took the very practice of critique to be one of the things that was at issue. So you know, you have on the one mm. hand the simple awareness model, right, which is the wearing kente cloth and reading, reading Robin D'Angelo or something, right. But then you have a more, I guess, apparently complex awareness model, which is that, well, if I just write the best book about like what the history of prisons are in the U.S., and it, and it tells us everything, and it really distills the logic of like incarceration and carcerality, like then that like that critical enterprise in itself has some obvious not something that doesn't need to be translated or interpreted, some obvious connection. To what what's what what we should do about it or how how is something ever going to be done about it? Like, you know what I mean? So so that mm -hmm. was for me at least, like that's that that's what I took, at least an implicit, whether you intended it or not, a kind of implicit target of what you were doing was a certain model of critique mm. predicated on awareness raising, whether it admits it or not. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I hadn't quite thought of it as you know, a critique of critique. But, you know, I mean, you know, let me be clear, like, you know, I think, you know, the, 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 the deeper substance of my worry here is that, you know, this um, reliance on what I'm calling the awareness model, this, you know, for, you know, um, uh, either a simplistic model of critique or even more complex, it often gets cashed out as as if so what we need are, you know, bureaucracies to absorb this and then, you know, just tell people these things and that's why we have all of these either cringe or you know dangerous things of like you know people losing their jobs because they aren't woke enough and i'm looking at this and lily wants to know like where my heart was when writing this and i'm, I'm just like enough of this this is a this is a trap that so much of our language about racial justice has you know at some point being almost completely captured by you know the language and technologies and practices of corporate bureaucracies you know of 
you know, the state managing it and, you know, of this idea that, you know, now that, you know, Joe Biden has, you know, people around him are telling him Black Lives Matter, that this makes some fundamental difference. And I want to say, you know, you have to understand, you know, if there is a backlash, you could understand the backlash being that, you know, this is massively disruptive to people's horizons of normative expectations. And it doesn't really offer anything new of where to go. And so part of me, I want to explain why racial justice keeps, you know, running into these, you know, blockages, running into these problems so that we can, you know, stop investing what I think is, you know, inappropriate model for social change. Yeah. So this is good. Um, I'm going to want, I want to hear a little bit more from you. Um, So first of all, the part of the critical work that you do in the piece that's just like extremely valuable is naming this thing, this awareness model. Um, because I think that's exactly, it, it's putting its finger precisely on this like shared uh, premise and confusion uh, that unites a lot of both like, you know, obvious, like obviously liberal and low hanging fruit Earth Day types. Uh, <laughs> but but as you say, like, and as Owen has pointed out here, also quite a bit of critical leftist work as well. Um, and, you know, from, you know, Habermas down the line. Um, so, uh, and okay. So there's a couple of things that I want to talk about. One of them is that, um, you spend some time in the paper talking about our friend Hayek. Um, (laughs) fist bumps for Hayek. I'm so psyched to talk about Hayek. Yeah. Okay. So Owen's chomping so, at the bit. He's like, "This is where I hope we were going to go." Bit. Immediately. Yeah. So excited to talk about Hayek, but so you're doing something very interesting with Hayek. One of them is that you are, I think, kind of ribbing our friends in the critical social uh, consciousness model, uh, the lefty types, being like, "Hey, you know who you sound a lot like, actually." is our friend Friedrich Hayek. Is this where you want to land mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you're sharing a lot of these same presuppositions? Mm-hmm. So like, boy? and the reason, I mean, it's a boy, great right? burn. Like, so, like, it sounds like Hayek is your boy. Like it's, it's ruthless. It sounds like your boy <laughs> yeah, might be Friedrich Hayek actually. <laughs> a little bit of this you. <laughs> is that, is that you? Right. And so like, and the reason why is because like, you know, the only difference between the two seems to be something like, um, a generalized pessimism for Hayek and a generalized optimism amongst our like consciousness raising friends. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they share like this idea of like, you know, self-transparency of a sort of direct line or automatism from understanding or awareness to transformative practice. And then some sense of like the complexity of the structures of society that needs to be understood. And in, in in the case of a Hayek, right, he's like, and it's too complex, you can't understand it, planning is a mistake. Yeah. But in the case of someone like, I don't know, who thinks that the 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 the, the road to a better society vis-a-vis race is like just a matter of getting enough people to understand that racism bad, right? <laughs> like in spite of all of the complexity that that involves, right? Mm-hmm. They're very they're like, you know, they're there's conceptual twins going on here so could you talk a little yeah. bit about like this this mirroring or patterning yeah. and like what you see going on there yeah so basically what i was i was doing there is you know that you know, so where hayek ends up when it comes to things like social justice and changes you know he is he is not you know saying something like you know, don't mess with the social order you can't do anything all he's going to you know what the position he ends up at because he thinks human cognition actually is dependent on social order so it's kind of uh, this idea that you know, human cognition for him can never fully grasp the complexity of the order that made it possible. And if that is true, and I wanted to do this because, you know, this shows that Hayek's political um, positions, he didn't just invent them. It comes from, you know, an epistemic idea, an epistemic pessimism he has of what consciousness Mm -hmm. can do. And so all he's going to say is the best we can do is piecemeal reform. And so when I'm looking at you know, the awareness model, all it wants, it seems as if you have this idea that once people are aware, some sort of revolutionary change would happen. But then there's always this explanation of, well, why that didn't happen. And it's, you know, well, you know, people have these you know, biases that they don't know about. Or, you know, it's because that maybe they didn't actually become aware. They weren't actually converted. Yeah, go deeper and in the subconscious. Find- Go yeah, here, go, go deeper, deeper go, go deeper. deeper. And I'm like, how deep you guys trying to go? And you know, what's <laughs> fascinating is what it, it cashes out as is just like piecemeal reform. 
that you know right. it turns out nice. even though awareness is you know going to be the motor there are also these arguments of why awareness keeps not doing it but you don't want to let go of awareness so it's as i said it's you know these biases that are you know distorting awareness or the person wasn't really converted or they weren't made aware in the right way and what i found you know shocking here is that sounds a lot like hayek saying yeah Consciousness is too constrained and it can't actually you know, do what it wants to do. And to try to do anything else is disastrous. And so I'm trying to like you know, push further and say, well, can an analysis of social order actually better explain? You know, um, you know, the constraints on consciousness. So we don't have to rely on uh, appeals to hidden racism. Um, this is not me denying that there are, are racists out there, but it doesn't seem to me that's explanatory. After what we saw with George Floyd, we need a better explanation of why the social relations have remained fundamentally the same. Mm. And for me, the, the explanation is there may or may not have been a crisis. And I'm, I'm open to talking about, you know, my understanding of the difference between a subjective crisis where, you know, your epistemological and hermeneutical resources, they just start running out to, you know, to decipher what I'm supposed to do next. Remember, with the George Floyd protest, it wasn't just George Floyd. It was, you know, a, a once in a generation pandemic. It was an um, economic meltdown. People who were used to their lives going a certain way all of a sudden found themselves out of work locked down and so in a strange way it actually makes sense that there is this outburst because you know people could not make sense of how to you know interpret and engage with their practical lives what wasn't there was you know um analyses and knowledge of where we go next and so you know i'm worried that you know looking at the george floyd protests you know depending on the awareness model you know will lead us back to the idea of well maybe people didn't become truly aware and so we need to keep doing more of that rather than you know really trying to understand what are um, the objective constraints and why don't we have the types of institutions that can cultivate you know a different type of consciousness that's more forward-looking um, that you know, can push us in a different direction. Yeah, I, I like the way that you conceptualize that critique of the awareness model. When you break, the, when you basically say that what the awareness model does is that it kind of breaks systemic problems into two orders, right? So you say, like, look, everybody's talking about systemic racism now. What well, everyone's aware of systemic racism? Why isn't that, you know, leading to? the proposition that maybe we should have a different system, right? Like I always found that really funny. Mm -hmm. right? If you acknowledge as this problem to be systemic, you're a revolutionary just by common sense to me. Do you know what I mean? Like it seems so strange to me to hear like Goldman Sachs talking about systemic problems, you know, but, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's this, oh, yeah, this right? is like the problem of our time. Like, I feel like we all have to like get a grip on what yeah. you just said, like that everybody says this shit and like everybody is just as conservative or liberal as they were. But like it's so strange because it's, it's one a logical step away. But I actually think that Will's paper helps to explain how we managed to make this make sense, which is that you, what you say, Will, is that on the, the awareness model in a certain way implicitly distinguishes between two orders of system, right? So you have the first order system, which can't be challenged and is obviously just the natural way things are. The market, right? Certain models of state mm -hmm. institutions, all that. Like, that's the first order system. And so, like... We could, you know, we could, we could, there can't be any problems with that because that's the way things are. So when we say system, systematic racism, mm. what we're actually thinking about is like <laughs> the second order system, the things that supervene on the things we can't change. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, there are some, you know, supervening systemic problems maybe like that, you know, overlay the big fundamental system that you can't touch, but maybe we could do mm -hmm. something on this like supervening level. And then it seems to me that what the concept of crisis consciousness does for you is it allows you to isolate the moment when we become conscious that, oh no, there actually is a problem in the first order system. The things under the really basic systemic aspects of our society, that on the its own- The basic structure. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Um, and then the utopian consciousness, the third part of it, the utopian consciousness is that, well, maybe we should, like, maybe it's rational, desirable, and possible to have a different first order system, right? And, but that's so difficult. And I want to be yeah. like very clear for those of you who haven't read the paper, you know, um, I don't think um, the way that I put it, there's no necessary political and moral content either to crisis sure. consciousness yeah. or utopian consciousness. I didn't mean to inflate yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no. I want you to talk about this because it seems extremely important. And you make this point a couple of times in the paper, and it's super important. 
Yeah, can you unpack yeah. that? What do you mean by that? Okay, so let's stick with crisis consciousness. So sometimes I notice that there is a type of discourse on the left that you know loves crisis. That you know there's almost a sort of messianic faith <laughs> that you know in crisis. X happens. 100%. You know, the the Messiah comes through. the The agent of history it's emerges, the event. and it's the it's the event. Yes, the and, event. Uh, we, we love events. Love events. We, we love, love, love events. We stand we an event. event. We love an event. But you know, something I've always found a bit sort of morally reprehensible about it is that it's this romanticizing of crisis as if the breakdown of one's normative expectations is actually always a good thing in the end. Furthermore, that subjects want that in the end. Like maybe they don't know it in the in the 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 moment, but you know, that's the way towards you know, a better world. And I'm thinking, well, in well, in the moment of crisis, thing was just as likely to happen are people doubling down on the basic structure or engaging in what we would consider reactionary and reprehensible behavior. Because, you know, on my understanding, you know, people aren't old, aren't looking for crisis. They're looking to make sense of their world and what they can do to have, you know, as much success as possible in their projects. And so we cannot afford to have the sort of messianic faith that breaking down people's horizons necessarily means some new political subject will come through and, you know, make the world better. With utopian consciousness, that you know what follows is that you know I don't think that utopian consciousness, the effort to make a new basic structure, necessarily is going to be better. There is a reason why you know historically, especially in the 20th century, there was a deep suspicion of utopia, of the idea that you know you can make a world where people are generally happy, and what you are willing to do um, to bring that world uh, in, into into being. And so you know my my worry here is that. We need to, you know, um, start talking more about, you know, what would allow us to guide subjects in that moment of breakdown. And I don't think, uh, like, you know, throwing books at people and telling them that, you know, they're guilty and they're, they're racist and all that's going to do it. Because if we understand what people are trying to do, they're constantly trying to, you know, reestablish, you know, some sense of themselves in the world. And, you know, and so to, to push further, I think, you know, what's really difficult uh, with racial justice, and this is, you know, also my kind of uh, beef with the awareness model is, I do sometimes think, like Owen was saying, that there's an assumption that the basic structure is actually all right, and the problem is mm -hmm. at the level of distribution. It's a second-order problem. And I, I, I don't think that this is because, you know, people are being, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't think it's because everyone's like, you know, these people are trying to dupe us into like keeping things the same. I think actually what it indicates is how difficult it is to establish a new horizon of normative expectations when you don't have a new basic structure in place. And that's what makes my account, I think, materialist. I do not think conscious can just, you know, jump into a new state of affairs. What I'm saying is you can have, you can try to have new horizons, but if there is not a basic structure to, to ground those expectations, to make them successful, then you're either, you know, powerless and doomed to failure or, you know, you're not actually understanding, you know, what the situation is, what the problem is. And so this is me trying to, like, you know, make the argument of this is much harder than I, I think we, we imagine, if that makes sense. I mean, my consciousness can just jump into new things. Well, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> lucky you. Like, I, take, you're, I frequently you're, uh, take a you're great, built different. I'm, I've been known to take a great leap forward or two. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a uh, it's the question why you didn't bring I like us how with Gil you. Got that like, <laughs> he's with me. Of course. <laughs> oh, great leap forward. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Uh, yeah. To your point, Will, uh, Aaron mentions in the chat that breakdown means a really bad time for already marginalized people, and that like mm -hmm. the sort of pro crisis like lefty types are the mirror image of the people on the right who are just like, Oh, we just need another great war. Where it's yeah. Like, uh, yeah. You know, this is, there's, there's again, a mirroring happening here, which those of us who at least take ourselves to be on the left or progressives should take much more seriously. Right. Yeah. Um, but so like, I, I think that like one of the things that your sort of way of talking and thinking about consciousness is so helpful for is this, it's this language that you use, which you've brought up a couple of times now, this horizon of normative expectations, right? And so, like, what is it 
that happens first of all in this in this moment right so you distinguish between these two different forms of critical consciousness on the fir- in the first moment mm-hmm. there's this sort of crisis crisis consciousness something like consciousness or awareness right awareness doesn't have no um place in your in your model here it's just you know a, a more it's, subordinate it's role sufficient or, yeah. It's insufficient, precisely, right? But it does play a role. So it seems like, and you can tell me whether I'm on or off here, right? Something like uh, crisis consciousness is this sort of recognition subjectively or awareness of there being an objective crisis at the level of the, the structure of society, right? And then it's something like that happens not just because there is an objective crisis in in society or that there are structural contradictions, Mm -hmm. but because something like my ability to orient myself and make sense of myself and my projects and to have a reasonable expectation of the success of my projects, right. Falls apart that there's like, that's that that's what like things, you know, where now it's no longer just like, um, you know, I, I, it's not a crisis for me, for most people that structural injustice exists, except for that, right? In mm-hmm. certain moments and beyond certain thresholds, this means something for me about how I am not able, any longer able to make sense, even of like my own self as someone who's got, you know, pl- plans. Like I got shit I want to do, yeah. right? <laughs> and like and, and that that you know that's normal. We 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 make plans, and you know this is what I I draw from Hayek. You know you know Hayek is saying you know well what you have to understand is that you know most people can never understand you know the true sort of complexity of their social. Or I think I use the example of how a price is generated. Like you know I go to the yeah. store, bananas are Very five dollars one day. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> what, what can I say? I think that this is interesting. Like, a little Hayek I go to the store, I see these yeah. prices. Yeah. <laughs> just a, just a little bit, but you know, maybe I, I want to say real quick why I'm Hayek pilled. I yeah. am Hayek pilled not because I want him to be right. I am Hayek pilled because I think a coherent left must have an answer for Hayek's epistemic pessimism. You know, mm-hmm. if it's going to make coherent sense at the end of the day, rather than a priori assuming. And I think I've said this on on numerous episodes that sometimes it seems like I'm talking to people and they think, you know, when the revolution happens, we're all just going to know what to do. Like, we're already the types of people who will know what direction to go in, how to deal with, you know, unexpected problems that will arise. And I'm thinking we have to, like, junk this sort of automatic idea that, you know, as soon as, like, the opening uh, occurs, we are going to be able to, to, to move forward. And so, you know, what Hayek realizes is if, you know, individuals can't understand completely, you know, all of the complexity that makes up their lives, what they are doing is, you know, they're making better that's based on the knowledge that they have. And you know, all of these individual people are are making these these bets. Um, I use the language of horizon of normative expectations, and he thinks that this makes sense because consciousness is dependent on the social order. That you know, the the social order provides the categories, the frames, um, and the understanding of you know, what I should do. So, I use the example somewhere in in the paper that you know, one could understand why you know a black person when they reach a certain you know social class, you know, and maybe. Maybe they come in ready to like turn the system inside out. They're the most radical person. And then you look at them two years down the road and they're the ones assigning all this DEI training. <laughs> they're the ones saying, you know, just hold on, wait. And so you could say they sold out, but I actually think Hayek would have a better explanation, which is they surveyed their environment and they started figuring out what works and what doesn't. And so even if this person is aware and has, you know, type of radical consciousness, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to know how to move forward. And so, you know, what I am I'm talking about here is, you know, in a sense, what we have to, you know, grapple with is that people do not do well with their horizons becoming unmoored. When yeah. there's a disintegration, not just of who I am as a person, I, I think a lot of racial justice rhetoric uses this idea of, you know, white people realizing, oh, my God, I'm racist and, you know, I, I don't know who I am anymore. OK, it might be that, but it's, you know, about quite literal things of, you know, 
I don't know where I'm going to, you know, get my next meal, or I don't know um, how to protect myself from the anarchy of the market and downturns and all of that. And you, know, and you are in this abyss. And so what I'm saying is that's a, that's a moment of crisis consciousness, and we can look at the George Floyd protests not simply as a moral revolution, but as a moment where there's this broad breakdown for an increasing number of people, more people than there normally are. What there was not was what I'm calling utopian consciousness, which was the, the effort and the institutions to establish new horizons of normative expectations, um, new horizons of you know, what this world would have to be like and um, uh, what different social relations would have to be in place for me to live up to whatever you know, ethics I, I have when it comes to racism and those types of injustices. The can, last thing I'll say I, real quick yeah, is this is also partially why I think you know, dealing with climate change is so, so difficult. What you run up against is you know, this, uh, this you know, impending sense that uh, the way we're living our lives is not going to remain the same. And yet it can seem like our politics is geared around, but how do we you know, keep the basic structure in place so that your current horizons of normative expectations remain coherent? Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think... Keep the we first have to order face up to the fact that yeah. exactly, and we have to face up to the fact that it won't. But that is a yeah. really hard proposition. You can't just like tell people that and then, oh, okay, I guess yo, I'll just become someone new. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least I've not seen that work. I mean, I so I actually do. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I actually think that um, I think Hayek was the perfect person to bring into this argument because, like. I think you're right that the way that he thinks about things like mirrors this kind of implicit epistemic pessimism. I also think like more explicitly he's positioning himself against your view to begin with. Like that is his project. So like, it's Mm -hmm. not just that like implicitly he's like, I'm going to be an apologist for capitalism. And what this means is that I'm going to tell you that you can never, you know, know well enough like you can never be full a society can't be transparent enough to itself to be able to make out economic calculations um, except for as individuals kind of problem solve in relationship to the price mechanism. So that's what we need. And there's this epistemic mm-hmm. deficit. So if you want to change it, it can never be a wholesale transformation. The point actually is though, is that like that is what he's saying. It's also a position that is explicitly against socialism. Like, that was his argument. Yeah. He, he actually just wanted... I mean, like, the point of the whole thing is to close off the future for you. I mean, like, it's just kind of saying the same thing you're saying, but, like, through the back door. Like, you kind of came at it through the front door and was like, listen, this is this, a kind of implicit epistemic pessimism. This maps onto the awareness model and has the... And the impact of such is, like this kind of piecemeal reformism and like you never, you're never going to know well enough and that's what we're going to keep working on. We're going to make you know better and better. Um, but like through the back door, like that's the setup of the whole argument is he's just like the, like sent, like it was the argument with central planning or market socialism yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's never, it can't be possible. And here's why. So it's almost like Hayek is, yeah, like that's his argument for like that's is why you need the the price mechanism, um, in the specific way that you need it, the ownership of private property and so on. So the whole so from it's almost like the argument is like bookended on both sides, which like I'm gonna I'm arguing against this kind this uto- like this utopian consciousness, and then I'm gonna make it impossible for you to think about utopian consciousness. And I think that <laughs> he that's, completely <laughs> forecloses it. Yeah, yeah he for, yeah, foreclo- nice. he like forecloses the the future. Um, and so like, I think that there's a mirroring thing happening with, um, just the end of history. Like I, I keep saying, I've like said this several times on our podcast, but like, I think that one of the distinctive things about the end of the neoliberal period is our inability to imagine the future. The fact that we can't think about you and all kinds of utopian thinking are literally so abstracted from anything we could actionably do. And that becomes like a virtue in and of itself. It's like, okay, well, if you're not willing to think like that, you're not really a radical. You know, you have to be like as utopian as possible or you're a cynic. Um, and so like that, like what the kind of result, like we're living in the world that Hayek's argumentation has created (laughs) 100 years later. So like 
that project, that intellectual project was so successful that we don't even know we're trapped in it anymore. And like, there's some moments in the past, like five or six years, 2020 or 2016 or 2015, maybe where you started thinking, wait, can we think, can we, can, can we think about the future again? Mm -hmm. But then the rapidity with which, I mean, it was blinding. It's blindingly demoralizing. If you don't already have a kind of like solid political or ideological foundation, it's horribly demoralizing to start to realize that, Actually, the awareness model at the end of the day, the fog clears, and you're like, "That is what's here." Like it, it's only, you know, it's, it's almost like it's almost like a Wizard of Oz situation where you're just like you're you're trying to find the wizard, and you Pink think you're about dark. to find him, and then at the end of the day, it's like, "That's all it is." I mean, isn't that like mm-hmm. it's my, anyway? Mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. We pull back the curtain, and it's like just a guy named white supremacy, and we're like. <laughs> All right, put the curtain back. Yeah. <laughs> right, like, <laughs> but I, I, I want to build actually, on that. Oh, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Go. I was going to no, say. No, I was just going to. Yeah, you know, you go. Okay. <laughs> I was just we'll going to say. Uh, yeah, go. This motherfucker. <laughs> you know, what I was going to say is, you know, you know um, for those of you who haven't read the paper, you know, I'm, uh, I, I try to argue that, you know, um, when it comes to utopian consciousness, that, you know, we shouldn't only cash it out as, you know, only a problem that we can't imagine, you know, a different world. But I actually think that, you know, the social orders that we, we live under have even fractured our knowledge and learning processes. You know, mm-hmm. we, you, maybe you could cash it out in a type of alienation. But, you know, basically what I'm trying to say is that even like what it would mean to start thinking about what it, <clears throat> excuse me, what it looks like to start planning a new order of life, a new social order. Actually, as you were talking, I realized, you know, in many ways, we are so in the grip of the Hayekian neoliberalism that, you know, really focuses on the necessity of spontaneous orders. And, you know, and sometimes it can seem as if, you know, the awareness model is, you know, this, you know, hope that spontaneously a new order will, will emerge. And, you know, because, you know, Hayek has blocked off this idea of you can never have the type of knowledge you need in order to plan and construct a new life then all you are left with is this hope of spontaneous outbursts, this hope of a spontaneous revelation and epiphany. Can I? Okay. But I have, I have a question here for you, Will. Yeah. You've said a couple of times that like, so I'm, I don't want this to be a gotcha, but I'm feeling like you're saying something different now than I read in the paper. Okay. And maybe you can explain to me where, where I'm not quite, where I've not got it. So like you're saying things like, you know, we should ask like what it would even mean to begin doing the work of developing utopian consciousness. Um, and like that perhaps this was part of what was lacking or missing, you know, if we do a retrospective autopsy, right. What happened last year, the largest, uh, you know, continuous, like long stretching protests specifically in the name of racial justice in history. Right. Uh, and yet, right. And what do we got to show for it? Uh, And part of the suggestion is, well, there was like an absence of utopian consciousness. Mm -hmm. At the same time, in the paper, you point out that like, in a way, we're actually also living through a utopian renaissance. Mm -hmm. And that um, like, and in fact, utopian consciousness does historically come along with crisis consciousness, that there is some sort of relationship of reciprocal determination or mutual interdependence there. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that I've asked my question, but I also want to add to that as like a second thing that you might hopefully be able to respond to is that in the chat fire, a bender asked a few minutes ago, whether or not we have any examples of organizations or institutions that have displayed utopian consciousness, right? Like what are mm. we, do we have any sort of like example examples of what we're talking about here? Okay. That's a, that's a really good question. Let me start with the first one. So when I'm, when I say in the paper that we're living through utopian renaissance, you know, what I'm referencing there is that, you know, we are living in a moment where we can call them the structural contradictions or the crises of the social order are increasingly apparent. And, you know, and I, I mean that like literally with an ongoing pandemic, um, with uh, you know, the realization that you know, Joe Biden being in the, premise, you know, the, the presidency, it didn't mean like a new form of life was walking in through, <laughs> through, the, through the door. And so it makes sense that people in this room start you know, grasping and asking you know, is this enough? But what I'm trying to say is, you know, just people asking that won't be um, sufficient 
to bring about something else, to bring about a new social order. It is just as likely that, you know, as Lillian was talking about, people get demoralized and, you know, withdraw or engage in ineffective tactics or just, you know, you know think, you know, maybe we just need, you know, one more <laughs> DEI seminar, one more election, and then we, we've got it. And this isn't me denying that, you know, reforms are necessary and important, but that was simply me saying that I think that we are living in a moment where you know, it is possible that the horizons of normative expectations that increasingly more people have are becoming unmoored. And so there might be an opening there if we can generate the types of institutions that can you know, orient the, the, you know, the consciousness to understand what is objectively possible. Um, when it comes to organizations that, you know, that have done this, like, you know, so this is so, this is really hard for me because sometimes I worry I'm a bit too Hegelian because I'm like, you know, well, but retrospectively everything seems necessary. And so it can be hard <laughs> to say like, you know, something like, oh, things would have gone differently. But I think, you know, if I were to point to some examples, I would point to like the civil rights movement in 1960s. I would point to, um, anti-colonial efforts in the 1950s and the 1960s. 60s. I don't think it's an argument against saying that there's a type of utopian consciousness there just because everything didn't work out perfectly. In fact, I right. think what it says is, you know, the gargantuan task that faces us in trying to you know, reorder and remake the world. And so, you know, um, if you read like Adam Gedichu's World, world Making After Empire, so many of these you know, anti-colonial figures thought that they were going to bring in a new international economic order. That was that was the explicit aim. And, you know, they were they were trying to make plans and strategies and federations. But, you know, because you know, the social order is you know, very intransigent, it's, you know, <laughs> it's very powerful that, you know, that didn't work out um, as planned. But I don't think the lesson to take from that, though, is that nothing is possible. I think, you know, um, that we have been living in a very you know, difficult time where, you know, after the 1980s into the 1990s, it can seem as if the world we have is simply the world that we're going to have to work with. And I want to ask, you know, what does it take for people to start, you know, investigating the basic structure of their lives and learning what it is that they can do to remodel it so that they can establish new horizons? I mean, I just don't even know how you can do that if you don't have organizations. I mean, this, I'm not, this is mm -hmm. complimentary to your point, and I think the question. Like, when you think about what it actually takes to learn to, like, have, have a utopian consciousness or to learn to see the future or learn to have shifted normative expectations, like, you know, um, I just don't even know what it would mean to do that, like, if you don't have an organization. And I think, like, the, the, the reason that you can say that it's, sort of obvious that that kind of con even if there's an opening for it certainly but the reason it hasn't emerged is because it's just not clear people have a place to like learn together mm -hmm. to do things like that i yeah. mean yeah. um mm -hmm. like when like i don't like i think it's true that people just rely like how much of like 90s and early 2000s philosophy was just about spontaneity in the event and things could be <laughs> otherwise i mean we talk about this all the time but I just think it's yeah. wild that that is like how people were really thinking. They were like, something will happen. And I think the reason that doesn't make sense is because like we're now, you know, millennials of a certain age who are like, okay, well, we just keep having all this spontaneity and then nothing happened. I mean, so like I think there's just genuine and even I'll say this. I'm not just talking about the sort of like what we used to call anarcho-liberalism that was pretty dominant on the American left from like Occupy onward. I also think on the far left and everyone in their little group of schools, you know, where you think that there's a way in which you can start rationalize your own, rationalizing your own ineffectiveness by like thinking that you're like a part of this movement that like through osmosis, it's the, the consciousness is spreader, spreading, you know, like, um, Trotskyists will, or, or Maoists will often call it like, you know, the, um, you know, the radicalization it's happening, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and every successful act of spontaneity is supposedly like transmitting this radicalization, this consciousness to each other. And like, the truth is, I just have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I don't know how you're trans, <laughs> I don't know how you're transmitting things. I know that people are going to universities and they're reading what the new left said about their own time and the past. I know that, but like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know exactly how somebody in 2015 who's like campaigning for Corbin, like is getting info from the people 
who participated in Occupy or in the Arab Spring five years previously. Like, I genuinely have no idea what you're talking about. And you seem to think it's all just, and I say you, the universal you, that it's all just like congealing, like it's happening. Yeah, I genuinely don't know what you're talking, like, I just... I get frustrated because I'm like, at some point, I just don't know what you're talking about. These people are not, in fact, communicating all the time. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like, I, communication has to happen, it? like, yeah. actually. On, on your point, Lillian, or your question, um, because I guess I, I guess I want to ask a kind of stupid, or maybe it's polemical, or maybe it's both, question um, about why it is that, like... It's stupid and polemical. Yeah. I, I live there. <laughs> it's not a bad spot, actually. It's utopia. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. No, it's, a, it's the best spot. But why, like... So why is it consciousness, especially, that interests you with respect to utopia? There are other ways of looking mm. at utopian social experiments or utopian institutions, utopian social practices. And I guess... Mm-hmm. My, my question is, is why, why consciousness? And it piggybacks a little bit on what, on what Lillian was saying, because, um, because I wonder if like you, so you say we live in this interregnum period, right? If we want to put it in the kind of like Sartrean language, we have a certain kind of practical inert, a certain inertia of practices, a certain practical framework that is disintegrating or showing signs of disintegration, showing signs of like fracture, showing signs that it's not as compelling as it once was, but in Sartre's language, what it's we not, la- yeah, it's not as persuasive. Exactly, it's not as persuasive. Yeah. But in Sartre's, it's, to put it in Sartrean language, um, it's not that the the consciousness is maybe lacking. It's that the group formations are lacking. It's that the practical inert is breaking down, but the seriality is so deeply entrenched. Right, our, our serial individuation our lack of the material framework for connections with one another don't ah, exist. So that's so good. So what we have is like an interregnum <laughs> between a practical inert that sucks and is shitty and isn't compelling to people. Mm-hmm. And yet we are still, we are still too fractured and individuated to push in, to push into a different practical configuration in which and like consciousness yeah. isn't antithetical to that. And it's not, that's why it's not really polemical in that sense. There is consciousness plays an important role in all of that, but I wonder why it is the aspect of consciousness in that whole process right. that, 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 yeah. that, 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 that interests you. That that's really helpful. So, you know, what, you know, I, I would want to make clear what I'm saying about utopian consciousness in the paper is, you know, the utopian consciousness that, you know, uh, I am in favor of, that I think would be necessary for social transformation, it's not purely individual. You know, if it were, then I, I would be kind of hoisting my own petard and think, so we just need people, you know, at least one person to start thinking, hey, this kind of sucks. Let's do something else. But, you know, what I, I am thinking of is, you know, and I keep, I, I believe in that section, I, I keep using the language of, you know, institutions institutions is how do we make explicit these implicit yearnings and desires and you know acknowledgments that people have that you know the usually language of practical inert is not working that's falling apart and how do we organize that and make it explicit so that it can be a type of material force in the world in order when you do that then we're talking about you know the emergence of a new form of life but you can't have a new form of life without a formation uh, you know a practical formation mm-hmm. and so my worry is That's that the language. awareness model you know makes it so that it's just you know, individuals need to have insight into the fact that the social order sucks like sure yeah I, I, they, they do but that is not enough if that consciousness is you know alienated and you know torn apart from practical structure that can make effective, you know, this uh, in, uh, implicit understanding or now explicit understanding that the social order is not working. And so to go back to Gil's question about the, you know, utopian renaissances, you know, I, I'm not the first person to say this, but I do think that we are seeing that we are in a moment in which neoliberalism no longer completely persuades. It no longer seems you know, up to the task of convincing people that the horizons of normative expectations you know, are well-founded by being you know, invested in this order. The problem is, what, what other option is there? 
And that is where I think you know, an opening is, but we can only have that opening for, you know, my argument is if we move away from individuated awareness to practical organizing and structuring, you know, this knowledge to make it something effective. And that will entail, and this is something I always get when talking about utopia, oh, you don't know that there are objective limits. Like, no, people engage in utopian <laughs> consciousness because there are objective limits, because, you know, things are not working out. They're not, like, doing it because, like, it turns out everything's gravy, and it's awesome. And so I always think that that's, like, a holdover from mid-20th century critique that people get from Hannah Arendt, you know, Hayek, and all of that. We need to move beyond that because, you know, what I get from Ernst Bloch is he's saying we cannot only be looking at the past. We need to start actually actually having knowledge of where we are going. Yes, if ditch you don't Arendt have that, and Hayek. Ditch Arendt. This is where it was always going. That's going to be what's left of philosophy's lasting contribution is ditch Hannah Arendt. <laughs> ditch Drop Arendt. Embrace the critique of dialectal reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Embrace the critique of dialectal reason. Embrace the principle of, of hope. hope 100%. And, you know, and also embrace bringing utopia and knowledge back into relationship with one another mm-hmm. rather Completely. than utopia as personal, individual imagination. Okay, great. So I did want to ask you a little bit more about that. Like, both of you, you touched on these things right at the end of that discussion. So, like, um, on, the, on the one hand, there is like this critique that you're developing, which I think has got to be right. Uh, and, and by the way, you said bef- you very nicely before talked about uh, the like Spinozist mark that I've left <laughs> on you by yes. being like, let's put imagination in the toilet where it belongs, right? Um, because, and, but then, <laughs> not, right? A little I, I am paraphrasing. I, am I don't know about the toilet, but yeah. <laughs> see, see how many dogmatists be? I know, see, man. This is a. I think I would call this a generous paraphrase of what you said. Um, but um, I'm sure you would call it that, yes. But then correlatively, I can say to you that like you've convinced me that part of why we need to keep uh, you know utopia alive as a principle and you know one that's like got you know a real important role to play is precisely because it can and should be understood not merely as a mode of imagination, but as a mode of cognition. And the language that you use in the paper is that utopian consciousness, properly understood, has an insight, has an an insight into not just like how I wish things could be otherwise, but about what's uh, something true about the social structure in which we find ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you think that Bloch... Ernst Bloch has something to tell us here about how that works and why we ought to to try to understand utopia the way. So can you tell me, can you explain yeah. a little bit more? Like, you know, yeah. Two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, so people from, you know, um, Habermas to um, Ruth Levitas, who's a sociologist, um, to I think Raymond Geis, they've blown Bloch up because they think Bloch can't actually figure out what the difference between ideology and utopia is. That, you know, <laughs> that, you know he says that he can, but, but he can't. So there's the first thing I want to say about what Bloch thinks about utopia is he thinks it's actually a necessary part of reason. He thinks mm-hmm. that reason yearns to understand what is not yet, that without utopia, without this you know, investigation of what is not yet, you actually don't have fully formed reason. All you have, like you know, for him, it always goes back to Plato. All you have is anamnesis. That, that has and to he be thinks, true. We've been too, be- we've been too beholden to you know, this you know, model of, of reason and knowledge generation. So the first thing I would say, you know, your, your Spinoza's imprint that I am now tossing back to you to convince you is that this is also about reason. This isn't about, you know, a rational spontaneity. This isn't about, you know, going beyond what's taken to be reasonable. The second thing that I get from Bloch that I think is really interesting, this, you know, goes into his speculative metaphysics. But for me, the speculative metaphysics is what would I have to be assumed to be true about the world in order for me to even get this project off the ground? And for him, what is the case is not simply what exists, but also latency and potenti- potentiality. That for him, you know, it is, you know, the you know, capacities that inhere in the objective world of what could be which you know, prevents utopia from becoming simply ideological of you know ho- hoping that some if i keep jumping in the air one of these times i'll just randomly float 
but it's actually you know generating the type of insight that I think can only come through you know a type of institutional democratic production of knowledge that will you know, be able to grasp a social fact, but also grasp you know what you know latent what is latent in social facts. What you know what um, you know. In other words, the way that I think about it is, it's one thing knowing a social fact, which on the awareness model is like, so I know there's institutional racism. What do I do about it? It's another thing learning. So given this social fact, what moves are available to me? What am I able to do now that I know what this you know, um, condition, this you know, restriction on me is? And I just think that Bloch must be right when he is saying, how can you understand if you think that social transformation is possible if you don't think that the world objectively contains possibility that can be act, you know be actualized and he thinks he's following hegel here in a certain sense of you know, what's actual is not just what exists but also possibility and so for me reason should not just be acquiescing to mere facticity, mm-hmm. mere whatness. Reason should be investigating, you know, the latent possibilities that are constantly, systematically being suppressed or being pushed out of view um, as if they are not, you know, possible. That's why I love no, that I you wanna, invoke this. Oh. Oh, go ahead. No, just, just, I just want to say quickly that the concept of Blockian hope, like the Blockian concept of hope that you invoke, you talk, you cite him describing the importance of like learning hope. And that not being educated hope, educated hope. Right. And that's not a kind of like inwardly directed care of the self or something. That's an outwardly directed (laughs) way of understanding social conditions in such a way that you don't just reify their facticity, but you are able to see in objective social conditions where the potentialities for alternative vectors of social development lie. Yeah, I just wanted to and mark Lydia, that. You're going to say thing. something, but I just want to say something real quick for the Spinozists in the audience. Bloch is aware of the Spinozist critique of hope that is simply the other side of fear. And he says, actually, there are two concepts of hope. Hope that is the opposite of fear and hope that's the opposite of ignorance. And so this is how he thinks he gets a hmm. he gets around the idea of hope merely as an affect oh, and hope as a modality of investigation. I didn't know that. Uh, at some point, we're definitely going to do an episode on Bloch and we'll yeah. be able to get into that with you. But, you know, um, that's what I think he's up to. And that's why it's not just inwardly. Mm-hmm. So two things and then I'm really sorry I have to go because it's 10 o'clock in Berlin and I have yet to eat dinner and I messed up making my pot roast and I didn't couldn't take it out before we started <laughs> no so really I have to go I have to that. go too but yeah. um that's fine yeah. this has been great <laughs> but, I'm, but I just yes, said that because I don't um <laughs> I'm I, you guys should stay and discuss the following things when I go um the <laughs> I'm gonna give you homework to a comment <laughs> a comment and then a question a comment is that when you were talking about people, like how can you imagine social transformation if possible, if not A, B, and C, I'm just going to say like my judgment is that like I think a lot of radicals today don't actually think trans- social transformation is possible. Mm. Like I think that we all like think that we say that kind of stuff, but I think that we That's live... That's a really important point. I think that we live in a time, not only is there outright pessimism, but people's actual behaviors are like dystopian practice like they're not utopian Mm. practices they're dystopian practices like what we are doing most of the time like when you feel like you can treat other people like garbage basically on the internet or anywhere else or if the only place you interact with people is on the internet and then you (laughs) feel like you can treat people like garbage or you're in political organizations and you feel like you can engage in all kind of nonsense or you can just be an academic who calls yourself an activist but doesn't actually do anything political all of these things are what I would think of as like extremely dystopian practices. It means you literally don't think there are any stakes to your behavior. And like likewise, you don't think there are any stakes. Like if you're in a small group of school and you can just have a split and then you can collapse and you can do something else, there's literally no stakes to what you're doing that make you think that that's why you think you can do that stuff because you don't actually think social change is possible and you implicitly think it doesn't matter what you do. So like... That's the first point. Like, I think that that's just like yeah. my judgment yeah. about like where the left is. Yeah. A lot of it is at not all of it. I'm not. Yeah. We're not all the. Yeah. There are things I like more than others, but in general, I feel like that's very <laughs> pervasive. Second of all, I was just thinking you're talking about learning processes. I think it's worth asking like whether what kind whether in what kind of um, 
idea of, of progress and teleology is going on in here because you cited um, Rahel Yegi, who has been criticized for having, you know, learning can be like implicitly an idea of progress and this can be problematic. Um, I don't think so. I just, I think that, that we learn. I think there are normative yeah, judgments about learning, you know, learning often we think it's good. But <laughs> imagine being like, I'm a critical theorist. I think learning yeah, is bad. I like right. think learn. it's good, yeah. and we like and we also like learning. remember my understanding of normative commitments is re- is really thin. It's not just like I ought to do this to be ethical. It's given how I understand the world, this is what I ought to do in order to have success. And that right, but, seems but like yeah. success yeah. is like normatively inflected. Like you kind of think there's something sure. you know better, better or worse about that. Um, yeah. But I do think it's like an appropriately circumscribed claim. Like you don't have to say like we're learning ultimately all the time you can you can kind of choose when you think we're learning and when we're not so um i just think that's like one of the obvious more obvious set of objections that i know she's received and like um an uncharitable reader of which i i don't think any of us are could be like wait but learning seems to imply progress and like are we always learning and the answer could be no there could be like regression clearly Hmm. so um, i'm gonna dip out um it was lovely talking about all of this with you i'm glad for the people in the chat i hope it was enjoyable and um i'm just gonna say that we are gonna have a series on utopia so can't wait that is true that is true and uh, before you go, I just want to announce while you're still here, we are doing our next uh, episode of What is Dialectics? And it's going to be on Sartre's Search for a Method. So look out for that in January. Foreshadowing. Okay, bye, guys. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. I've got a jet, too, because just had a baby. The, it's the official baby of the What's <laughs> yes, Left of Philosophy podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, our, official our, baby. So I, I'm, just still, I'm still waiting for Gil to, to hook up the, the little romper <laughs> merch and the little onesie merch. But It's true. Know, hey, yeah, look at this. I got, I got my... Uh... Hey. <laughs> That's what I'm saying now. You just got to make that in a onesie form and we're good. We need... Yeah, I'll put it together in a onesie for you. Um, yeah. But I got to get back to the hospital. So. You got to do that bio and thank you. Um, Love you guys. Thank you, everybody. That was amazing. Yeah, it was great. Thank you for doing this and thank you for everyone who came out. I hope it was enjoyable.